Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, you know, the uh, anecdote, you know, data is the plural of anecdote. Uh, so two of the four of us have some anecdotes that I think will, um, uh, taken together, uh, offer a perspective on what's going on in America right now. Granted, the anecdotes we're about to tell involve uh, things happening in in big major cities, not in suburbs and not in small towns, so you can take that with a grain of salt. I'll just start with my own. Uh, our offices are just south of Times Square uh, in, in what's called the Garment Center. Um, we are about 50 feet from one of the entrances to the Times Square subway station, the most used subway station in the New York City system. Uh, yesterday morning came a bulletin that in that subway station, so pretty much directly under me as I sit uh, on the uptown track of the number one train, a woman had been pushed into the path of an oncoming train by another woman, uh, sustaining facial injuries, but not, in fact, being killed and was taken to the hospital. The suspect remained at large. Uh, It's not clear what precipitated this, whether this was just a sort of random attack or a fight between two uh, people that took place at 8.30 in the morning on a subway platform, which itself would be weird. Uh, three hours later, just outside that subway station entrance, the very same one, came news that um, a man had been shot in the leg. Uh, this came nine or ten months after a random shooting in Times Square, four blocks away, where a somebody was basically shot because somebody else had a gun out and and fought, and you know mistakenly fired the weapon and it, it grazed a total innocent bystander. Um, around four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, in Union Square on 14th Street, there was a rally against vaccine mandates. And where the rally against vaccine mandates was taking place was right outside uh, what's called Lab Q. That is, there are these trucks where you can go and get screened for COVID. Um, and you know, sort of for no out-of-pocket expenses. Either they charge your insurance or they charge the state or whatever. So it's uh, they're all over the city. There are 10 of them or something like that. Very convenient. Um, around the same time that this was going on, I was at a lab queue lab with my son, who is 11, who needed a test for school, as they do sort of pool testing uh, for his school. Uh, but almost exactly the same moment, and this m- mob of anti-vaxxers or anti-vaccine mandate people just sort of up and decided to attack the Lab Q truck, uh, which has a sort of tent right outside it. And they ran over, and they were yelling, "No vaccine mandates!" And then they knocked over this tent, which is like one of those things you buy at Home Depot, like like a canopy, you know, like a like a kind of uh, a traveling canopy. And knocked over a table, and there were cops standing there who did nothing, did not um, did not intervene, did not arrest the people who had done this, just sort of stood there watching. 
and as I say, I had had they come to seventy first and Broadway, that would have been me there, or my son there, uh, where they would have sort of staged this moment that was obviously intended to kind of provoke some kind of violence that did not occur. And then three hours after that, a, a half a block from where my son and I had been standing. Um, on the Upper West Side, on 72nd Street, a very fancy neighborhood and a very low-crime neighborhood, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, uh, came reports of gunfire. So this is this was my day yesterday, Monday, whatever that was, the 4th, I guess, of, of, of October. Uh, someone pushed on the subway track. Someone shot in the leg. Uh, a vaccine mandate rally gone sour that turns violent and gunfire uh, in my neighborhood at night christine you you have had uh you had yourself a time yesterday also yeah, thankfully much less violent but um because i also no i, I don't know if it's more I don't well know, let, I mean, let's, scary, let, let's let scary, people decide yeah. go ahead so we so i live in a fairly low crime um neighborhood but we've seen a recent uptick in you know there have been some carjackings nearby some certainly a little uptick in armed robberies and you know but usually late at night so I was coming back around four in the afternoon with my son from a from I had taken him to the doctor, and we try to get into our front door and realize somebody has pried tried to pry the lock out of the door handle and break into the house. It was scratched up the door, and so then the door had because it's an old door an old lock got jammed, so we can't get in and out of our house that way. We'd go through the basement, but um, I did file a police report, told my neighbors and everybody was sort of like, wow, in the, I live on a, you know, pretty busy street on, in a city in the, in broad daylight, somebody just grabbed a screwdriver and thought they could try to break in the house. Um, it's very, really disturbing to me because, um, I will now be obviously reconsidering some of the security measures I have in my home, but it was just the, the sort of randomness of it and the opportunity of it, because people are always walking up and down my sidewalk. It's, it's a, it's not an isolated or dangerous place. And it, and it has, after talking to some of my neighbors about it last night, there's just been an uptick in that kind of random but sort of scary efforts to break into people's homes. I mean, tons of garages have been broken into, but that's fairly common around here. Um, but the violent crime, the carjackings in particular, the armed robberies, the assaults, those are all steadily creeping up in the general sense among you know the people I talk to, at least, and certainly my sense is that things are kind of teetering on the edge of being out of control if they haven't already. Now, in some neighborhoods in D.C., I think they're already well out of control. Um, but, you know, the I have to, you know, kudos to the cops. They respond immediately to these things. They're very good. But nobody who gets caught, if they do get caught, really gets prosecuted very <laughs> heavily here in D.C. because we're under the jurisdiction of the federal uh, prosecutors. So there's there's a real problem with the system. But it's scary to think that, you know, you're kind of going about your day and suddenly you're presented with, oh, somebody was trying to break into my house. Um it's a little scary. Well, so I think it's more than a little scary, and I think I think wh what's what's suggestive uh, of a larger uh, issue here is that we are having these conversations about uh, violence uh, in the United States in a very abstracted, politicized fashion. Right? We talk about uh, theoretically, it's not supposed to be abstract and politicized because what we're what we're supposed to glean from from sort of liberal public opinion is that uh is that worries fears of crime or have have let loose a demon in the united states in the form of police violence against minorities particularly against african-americans and that that is the issue that is uh bedeviling the country uh in the worst 
possible way uh, and that uh, measures have to be taken to restrain the police. So things that are uh, theoretically restraining like body cams uh, so that there's a so that there's sort of like an independent evaluation of every interaction between a police officer and a, and a civilian. Um, and then obviously changes in bail laws. <clears throat> the, the, the fact of the citizen with the iPhone uh, taking video footage uh, around and, and the fact that um, police officers, particularly in very blue cities with very progressive mayors, have every reason now to um, hold back, as I think they were doing yesterday at this vaccine mandate rally, uh, anti-vaccine mandate rally, uh, they looked very much like they had been told not to intervene unless some, probably unless some threshold of violence had been breached, which apparently doing damage to private property or, you know, doing something injurious to somebody else's private property did not, did not break that, you know, did, did not breach that, uh, did not raise the level of, uh, the level of intervention, let's just say. And the question is, what are the consequences going to be? The person who was shot in the leg in Times Square or in the garment center yesterday at 1130 was urinating on the sidewalk. And that's an important detail that I left out. Uh, urinating on the sidewalk because the neighbor, this this area, which is was one of the most heavily trafficked on foot in the You can't imagine how insanely crowded the sidewalks were during the day before the pandemic, has been given over to street people. I don't mean homeless people. I mean junkies. I mean people dealing drugs. There are, there's open air drug selling, uh, pot, probably worse stuff. Abe, you've seen people uh, injecting heroin between their fingers time and again, just like on our block. And there are uh, street. There are people who are homeless living on the streets, all over the place. They are. Um, peeing they are they are doing worse than peeing uh there is garbage everywhere there are these little encampments everywhere it's it's no joke and these exist obviously because uh directives have come out that you are not to rouse them you are not to disturb them you are not to force them into shelters you are just to let them be yeah i mean you know i think part of the issue here is that when uh crime first really jumped last year especially violent crime, uh, as the, the recent FBI statistics attest to, the, the, the 30% uh, murder rise last year. Um, it was so shocking and so obvious and dramatic because uh, it was so sharp and because there were so few people out on the streets. But, you know, something else those statistics said is that that rise has continued this year just slower but it's still a rise and um it's and it's necessary to say that if it's rising from last year mm-hmm. last year creates a new baseline in other words That's you're right. not just talking about it saying oh well the increase is lower if the baseline goes from 10 to 30 and therefore there is a you know whatever that is a 200 uh, in 200 increase in crime and then you go from 30 to 40 that's only a Right, that's only like a thirty percent increase in crime, but but you're still you still got more deaths than you had 
you know, the, the aggregate number of, of incidents is up not only year to year, but based up, but from where it was when crime was low. Exactly right. And, and um, also because there are the sort of normal pedestrian traffic is filling in somewhat since, since the, since the sort of ghost town status of last year, you can be somewhat comforted by that superficially doesn't change the fact that those that 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 the crime is still rising but more slowly and because it's been you know 18 months or so you get somewhat used to it um but then as we're doing today if you delve into the to, to the details you see that you know d- despite being you know somewhat comforted it's it's things continue to be bad and it can I mean, mask a- so the problem gets masked in a way right. this year that it didn't last year I mean, the whole point about this is there's a brazenness to all of this. Like, it's stuff that is going on in public that you can see. Not only not only where we are, uh, but Christine lives a block and a half off the, maybe the most heavily pedestrianized shopping district in Washington, D.C. It's not like she's on a, you know, leafy block in the suburbs. Like, um, the classic eyes on the street theory of Jane Jacobs would say that an incident like happened to Christine's house in broad daylight would not happen simply because uh, criminals themselves would know that there were people all over the place watching and they would be restrained by that fact. And apparently whoever, whoever tried this at your house was not restrained as people are increasingly less restrained from engaging in these impulses by changes in law, custom, and prosecution. We know, for example, in D.C., we already know uh, one of my neighbor's sons is a cop. So I I actually, you know, I I hear some of this stuff sort of indirectly from sources, but I've seen this covered in news stories as well. What they're finding in D.C., for example, is that because the consequences, for example, for violent juvenile crime and offenders is, are fairly low. We've Our city councils pass all these liberal laws about like, let's give them third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 20 chances to redeem themselves um, over and over again. Uh, the viol- A lot of the violent carjackings in DC are taking place uh, at the hands of 12 and 13 year olds. People get too young to even drive are carjacking cars and four older criminals. Like they've basically been recruited in, in, as part of gangs to do this because the, the adults know that if the kids are caught, which they sometimes are, they're going to get a slap on the wrist at best. If they're not caught, there's another vehicle that can be used in the commission of an additional crime because that's mainly what these carjackings are for. They steal a car, then they go on a robbery spree. So, But the consequences matter because kids are literally actively being recruited into, into a, uh, dangerous uh, activities because there's they get a slap on the wrist if they get caught. This all is taking place uh, against a national backdrop uh, attitudes about uh, crime, criminality, uh, social conflict uh, that I don't think we can divorce them so easily from, um, you know, sort of decline in national civility standards. So we all saw over the weekend Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona being confronted. I think there are three different points of confrontation for her. One was that a an activist who claimed to be speaking on behalf of indigenous peoples in the United States, whose last name is Serbian. I was unaware that there was a native American Serbian tribe, uh, you know, uh, but nonetheless, 
chased her into a bathroom uh, in Arizona. Then there was a second point of confrontation as she was on a plane uh, coming back to D.C. And then a third when she was getting off the plane, walking through Reagan Airport and was being accosted. And then the president of the United States was asked what he made of this conduct and he poo-pooed it a little bit. I mean, he he said it shouldn't happen, but this is all part of the process. Thus, the chief executive of the executive branch of the United States of America and the only you know nationally elected official in the United States of America seemed to be giving a yellow to greenish light to people uh, confronting. Uh, politicians in in a in a bathroom stall and yelling at them through a bathroom stall uh, because for you know fortunately for him if that should happen to him in any way shape or form the secret service would tackle somebody and that person would go to jail for 10 years so he has nothing and that was true when he was vice president also so he got nothing to worry about they were also filming her in the bathroom i think that's actually important to note they were filming her in the bathroom which is i think against the law and just about everywhere so um, but his his normalization of it was he, saying something's inappropriate, then sort of shrugging, going, eh, it happens to everyone. It doesn't happen to everyone. But that normalization of that sort of um, behavior was exactly what the cultural and political left, I think, accurately and, and um, necessarily constantly called Trump out for, right? When Trump mocked people or said things that were really kind of crossing a line of civility and discourse and what you want to see in a leader, they pounced. I mean, talk about pouncing. They were on him for it. There were multiple stories written about it. It stayed in the news cycle, as it should, because some of the things he said were actively offensive to people. And and some of the behavior he wanted to normalize was should not be normalized. But to see Joe Biden doing this, a, a version of the same thing, and it's like crickets. <laughs> but I, I think, I mean, very specifically, the way Biden responded, I think, is is tremendously problematic because to say it is part of the problem, it is, uh, it is part of the process, rather, that is actually factually not true. That's the whole point. This is not part of the process. The, the, the political process is what's been going on over the past week, you know, with trying to sort of meet and negotiate and, and, and legislate. Um, that is the process. Harassment. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said that that's part of the process unless you have secrets, a secret right. service detail. Yeah. yeah. Which well, is that, so that is what he said, but he, which is true. That. It has become part of the process and it's part of the process because Democrats ignored it and incubated it over the course of the Trump era. This is what they did to Sarah Huckabee Sanders when they kicked her out of a restaurant. This is what they did to Ajit Pai when they camped out in front of his house, put the pictures of his children all over the neighborhood. This is what they've been doing to Justice um, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, it's, it is part of the process now. It's part of the process that Democrats brought into being and exposes the extent to which when they talked about civility returning, all they meant was they didn't like how Donald Trump talked about people. They didn't actually mean civility. They meant, you know, we got to shut this guy up. It's older, obviously, than the Trump era, but it, it is a classic far-left tactic. I will just give you another anecdote from my own family. So my my late sister Rachel, uh, married to Elliot Abrams, who was then the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Central and South American Affairs. Um, people didn't like the Reagan administration's policies in Central America, particularly relating to Nicaragua. My sister had three very small children. They lived in a neighborhood. Of, they lived in Chevy Chase, D.C. 
And uh, a couple of times uh, during a heated moment in the Contra debate, protesters showed up on my on my sister's lawn. Protesters showed up on my sister's lawn. Um, private residence, no Secret Service, no nothing. Yelling, screaming, calling him a murderer, while my five-year-old, four-year-old, and two-and-a-half-year-old nieces and nephews were staring out the window at these people doing this. Uh, it was a far left. It was some kind of some kind of a um, you know Spartacist group. So it was a far left day. Now this is sort of you know bridged into into normal everyday uh, behavior in some sense, uh, democratized and spread because there is now an audience for this on social media. You do it in order to film it, in order to, in order to, um, you know, broadcast it in order to do two things. One of which is to put the pressure on cinema in the moment to spread the word that she is under this kind of assault and as a warning to everybody else not to cross you ideologically, depending on who you are and where you are. Yeah, did you no, notice? No, I just wanted, did you mention in that list that Maxine Waters calling on uh, people to get in the faces of uh, uh, Trump supporter of, of Trump supporting politicians in public and restaurants and wherever else? I did not. But that, that as I recall, preceded uh, the uh, harassment of Sarah Huckabee Sanders in particular. And just to add to the the just one of the justifications and excuse making um, for harassing cinema recently is that, well, she just refused to meet with us. So she's refusing to meet with us. So we have to harass her in, in a, ba- a public bathroom because she's refusing to meet with us. So it's not as if they, they, they actually feel that this is a justifiable tactic for that reason. Of course, it will have the opposite effect. If this continues, this kind of harassment becomes mainstream and normalized. You're going to see senators and representatives with far more distance between themselves and the public when they, when we, they are out in public. We should add that um, Republicans aren't immune to this either. Um, and in the wake of the January 6th uh, riots, uh, you had plenty of off-the-record comments um, from members of Congress, elected members of Congress, talking about how their votes were were influenced by this intimidation campaign, which is banana republic territory. Um, so it, it, this isn't a <clears throat> you know a one-party phenomenon, but not at all. It has right. been incubated over the course of the last four years by Democrats who were too in, who found this to be an instrument of political utility. You know, we haven't mentioned the scenes of um, a people uh, accosting diners uh, on, you know, in, in on 14th Street in Washington, on 41st Street in Manhattan. This idea that uh, in part because of the outdoor dining sheds and things like that, there are a lot more people eating outside and people coming up and sort of yelling at them and sort of demanding their money, saying that they're, you know... That they they must stand up to you know to to attack white privilege or whatever this this these um these behaviors that are designed to um to poison to poison our common spaces or to or to make it clear to people that they are nowhere are they isolated from uh, the demands of the woke uh, to to uh, uh, show their fealty or at least their fear, either their fealty to or their fear of uh, woke opinion and, and, and the behavior that is expected of them. Well, you know, the, the flip side of the woke claim that speech is violence and therefore speech should be 
sort of, you know, monitored and cracked down on because it's violent, is that when they when you're committing when they're committing violence, they're just expressing speech. Um, and we've heard that argument, you know, there this absolutely disgusting tweet by Dinesh D'Souza saying that um, uh, January 6th was Tiananmen Square and that the violence that we saw, the mob violence that we saw on January 6th, which has now increasingly become something, as Dinesh's tweet and as others are, are, are showing, has become something for which people are now moving into active apologetics or celebration. Um uh, that itself is another is a is a is a sign. I mean, that's something everybody saw with their own eyes, and the idea that what was going on there was something liberating, or you know, a, a kind of um, a display of resistance to the regime. Which regime exactly was being resisted? The regime of the vice president of the United States, a, a conservative uh, Republican who was simply supposed to be fulfilling his constitutional duty to accept the electors ballots. Um, what regime are we talking about? And just because you don't like the regime doesn't mean that you have quite the opposite. You, you have the right to protest. You have the right to criticize. You have the right to do all sorts of things. You don't have the right to break windows, to trespass and to attempt to bring the government down, uh, in whatever stupid way you think you can bring the government down, you absolutely do not have a right to do that unless the system is cracking. And unless we are transitioning from being a democratic Republic to a banana Republic that, that, and yet we do have this uh, attitude on the far right of celebration of something that we all saw with our own eyes nine months ago, uh, uh, or 10 months ago that was, you know, that was an actual evil right before us and it's amazing how easily those things get excused i think um let me just uh, pull back for a second and talk to you guys about our first sponsor today expressvpn uh you know when you when you have expressvpn it anonymizes your internet uh behavior and your your what what you're doing on websites uh People think they can do this by using Google, uh, the Google Chrome uh, incognito mode. But as Google itself has revealed in the course of a, of a lawsuit, incognito does not mean invisible. Uh, incognito just m- makes you feel wrongly that you are you are invisible. In fact, uh, they're still collecting and selling your data. And so you need something like ExpressVPN and you need ExpressVPN. Because in uh, ExpressVPN is the best uh, one of these uh, VPN routers on the market. Uh, what they do is they take your IP address and they they reroute it through an encrypted server, which a masks your IP address and gives you a random one shared by many other ExpressVPN users. And in that in that uh, Multiplicity comes comfort because it makes it much harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. And ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Now, um, uh, last night came the word. Now now we should talk about uh, uh, putting shoes on, on the other foot. So we have this civility crisis, this, um, these conflicts between uh, 
citizens and uh, functionaries in government and all of that. And we we have seen time and again over the last uh, six to eight months, let's say, uh, um, conflict at school board meetings uh, across the country where parents are uh, showing up to talk about the horror that they are experiencing in relation to critical race theory, changes in curriculum, changes in school names, and the imposition of this uh, leftist doctrine and propaganda uh, in, in, in the classroom to brainwash uh, their kids. And uh, this is a very interesting and supple movement. Christine wrote a piece about this for, for the magazine on whether or not there is a parents' movement. Uh, uh, parents are now going to become an interest group in a way that they never have been before. But there have also been terrible ugly scenes uh generally involving sort of uh, provocateurs often people who don't aren't from the school district or have come in uh who are just who are like the joker in the dark night and want to see the world burn and so they they they're there they threaten people they threaten people outside the 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 school board they show up again they show up on their their lawns to attack them and all of that um uh, this behavior is unconscionable and disgusting uh, but uh, remarkably enough, uh, there's been an elision made, not remarkably, it's totally understood, there's been an elision made between parents who are expressing their uh, understandable horror at what is going on with curriculum, and then these people who are actually actively threatening people on school boards and and school officials and, and the like. And uh, the Biden administration, in the person of Attorney General Merrick Garland, has now decided to intervene uh, on on one side here. Um, so uh, Garland sent out a letter yesterday uh, addressed to uh, the Criminal Division, the National Security Division, the Civil Rights Division, the Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, the FBI, the Community Relations Service of the Department of Justice, and the Office of Justice Programs at the Department of Justice, uh, saying that they need to meet uh, in order to discuss the uh, the question of the behavior here, uh, this disturbing trend, uh, an increase in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school board members. Um, so the full weight of the Justice Department it may now be brought to bear on people who are doing this sort of thing, uh, or you know, some people who are doing this sort of thing. Uh, before uh, school boards. So how do we feel about this, Christine? Yeah, so um, we were discussing this on our text chain and Abe made a really important point, which is threats, intimidation, and harassment are already illegal. If you do that for any reason and someone feels threatened, they can go to the police and that you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to threaten someone in that way. Um, So the question then becomes, why are they doing this specifically now and specifically targeting people who oppose uh, what's going on in their school boards. And that, I'm not quite sure. My cynical answer would be to say that they, the Democratic Party is, of course, quite beholden to the teachers unions and other special interest groups, which have a stake in in uh, suppressing and limiting debate about some of the things that parents are very upset about right now. On the other hand, we also have parents kind of, you know, losing their mind and probably saying very threatening things. So I, for me, this, this, this is, this is a weird, if they're just meeting to discuss it, okay, but I think it will 
just the publicizing that they are meeting to discuss this and see it as a threat that's worthy of this kind of attention and discussion could also have a kind of chilling effect on, on an average parent who just wants to come and raise issues in front of the school board. Because we have seen school boards, you know, cut parents off, escort them out of the room when they don't like what they're saying. We've seen teachers unions in places like Los Angeles actively try to research and um, harass parents who've raised uh, questions about policy. So uh, I'm not trying to whataboutism here, but I think it's really strange that they would target um, educators at this particular moment when there are plenty of other groups who face sustained harassment. Um, so I, I, I just, it, it, it's curious to me. I don't have a definitive answer, but it strikes me as odd. Our friends at uh, Legal Insurrection uh, posted a piece uh, on Friday uh, about how the National School Boards Association uh, has basically called for what the Justice Department has now done. It is requesting the U.S. Justice and Homeland Security Departments, along with the FBI and U.S. Secret Service, to track and investigate risks to students, educators, board members, and campuses. Uh, the School Superintendents Association co-signed the letter, calls these things domestic terrorism, and asks for federal uh, intervention. Um, so we are alighting, again, we are alighting uh, questions about curriculum with uh, threatening behavior from some individuals. And it's all essentially one is tarring the other and one is calling into question the legitimacy of the other. And we have Terry McAuliffe, the gubernatorial candidate for the Democratic Party in Virginia, former governor of Virginia, who said uh, in a debate last week that uh, parents shouldn't have a role in the education of their children, a, a jaw-dropping thing for him to say, but the logical consequence of a lot of what has been argued about over the course of the last couple of years. Parents should step aside and let the experts determine what their children learn. That is a perversion of, a, of 200 years of American experience. There wasn't even public education in the United States until the 1870s, uh, the idea the idea that parents are the educators of their children is the core idea of, in some ways, of the American political experiment, um, and that you know basically parents then are a, a part of a collective that hires people to provide certain specific forms of expertise. But that the but that the gubernatorial candidate for a major purple state would actually say specifically, parents, you stay out of the educational questions. This is not for you. Uh, is indicative of the mindset that could lead you to say anybody standing up at a board meeting saying this is bad. And these are all elected people. School board officials are elected. They are therefore supposed to be responsive to the people who elect them. But that is a slippery slope argument, which is in itself an elision. You get to A and B without explicitly saying how you get to A and B. I don't think it's appropriate for us to contribute to what I see as one of the biggest problems in this country, which is this gr a sense of grievance, a paranoia, and a persecution complex that leads you to such elisions. We don't know what the nature of these threats are, and I'm quite sure there are threats. I am 100% positive there are violent threats being made against these people. Christine sniffed this out last night. She said, this memo smells to me like some interest group demanded something of the Justice Department that the Justice Department is providing it. I don't think a single parent is going to be intimidated against showing up at a school board meeting because the DOJ issued an interagency memo talking about how we need a 30-day talk shop to get to a recommendation of some particular policy. I don't think that's true. 
And we don't, I don't want to prejudge what's going to come out of this interagency policy meeting, because it could be something that stops far short of ideological policing. That would be a red alarm. But we don't know that that's going to happen yet. And to prejudge it, I think, is um, uh, impertinent and doesn't contribute positively to the to the dialogue. So, well, I, I, I mean, I just, I just have to say, at, at the risk of of doing exactly what what Noah warns against, um, and and I and I, you know, I, I understand and respect uh, that 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 point of view, and I think it's I, I share it to to a, a certain degree. Um, I think it stinks. It doesn't, particularly because, as I said last night, harassment and threatening people is already illegal. So. I, w- whether or not the Justice Department is doing this simply to satisfy some interest group, what my concern is, and I don't know this will happen, but my concern is that there are individuals out there who will feel emboldened to now um, sort of preemptively uh, snitch, call in uh Supposed, you know, uh, uh, domestic, you know, d- domestic terrorists in in uh, in in hiding in you know in their in the in the beginning phases, and uh, we will see a, a kind of sort of uh, network uh, ag- mobilized against concerned parents. The, the the use of the phrase domestic terrorism is is for me the the problem here because that's defined first of all defining domestic terrorism down i mean uh, in, in a lone threat individuals making violent threats is bad and it's against the law and they should be arrested and prosecuted domestic terrorism is a different thing this is a, this is a kind of um the goal of a domestic terrorist is generally different. The the networking in terms of recruitment and trying to get others on board is different. So I just I, I worry that if parents sort of band together and form a Facebook group and say, we're going to march on the next school board meeting with our placards to to make sure they hear our voices, you know, an overzealous left leaning uh prosecutor in a small town might say, oh, I'm going to make hay of this. Like, I'm going to I'm going to make sure that they know. Again, this is I think Noah's right to be to tell us to caution ourselves is not spinning, spinning out the worst case scenarios. But the domestic terrorism label, I think, in this case is not appropriate unless they have a meeting and they come up with evidence that that is indeed there's some shadowy network of parents planning to blow up schools. I, I have not seen evidence of that. I've seen a lot of anger and emotional overreaction. A lot of it justified, given how they've been treated by their school systems. Um, I've also seen a lot of that on the other side, too, directed at parents. So I, I, I mean, I, you're right, Noah, we, the verdict is out on what they'll do. But that phrase bothers me, domestic terrorism, in, in the context of talking about parents uh, protesting. It should be said that the phrase does not appear in the Garland letter. That phrase is from right. the National School Boards Association letter saying that these that 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 uh, they're being afflicted by domestic terrorism. So uh, and uh, it bears watching, I guess, is the only thing to be said. They can have a meeting to discuss it. They could basically say at the end of that meeting that our laws, as we currently have them, as Abe is saying, are, are, are far are, are far sufficient in and of themselves to provide the protection and the and the um, you know the means to go ahead if people do 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 wrong and and do bad things, uh, but there does seem to be some version of fan service going on here. Um, that the encouragement uh, that these... of snitching should also be watched. I think Abe's right to to highlight that the encouragement of you know 
parents ratting out other parents or teachers ratting out parents. That, that kind of, that culture grows uh, like a weed, like kudzu, uh, quietly, but it's it's incredibly pernicious. And we know this from free speech issues on campuses and whatnot. It leads to self-censorship. It leads to people going, you know, it's just not worth it. It's the same issue, quite frankly, that when people see a senator being harassed in a women's restroom uh, and being videotaped, they think, why would anyone ever run for public office, right? There, there, there's a there's a bad feedback loop that that kicks in with that sort of culture flourishing. Right. So guys, you know, from the first moment I sat in my ex chair, my body immediately said, ah, so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. And I never actually looked forward to sitting in my office until I got my ex chair. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My ex chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My ex chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, excuse me, let me say that again, dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons I love my X-Chair. And sometimes even if I'm not working, I sit in my X-Chair just to get that feeling. Take my advice. Try X-Chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days once you realize how much of your chair could be. You'll never go back, I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month, xchaircommentary.com. Dot com. So just to return to mere politics uh, for a minute, uh, Leanne Caldwell of NBC News uh, has a bulletin out uh, early this morning. Pro- President Biden told progressives last night that he thinks he can get Senator Sinema and Manchin to $1.9 to $2.2 trillion. That's on the, on the big budget reconciliation bill. That's a bit smaller range than he told House Dems on Friday. But perhaps most interestingly, progressives on the call said they'd support the number he can get. So uh, this is the big question here is uh, if uh, the pressure is the pressure is on uh, on mansion and cinema, the number drops from 3.5 trillion to 2 trillion. Uh, do they do, does mansion cave on his 1.5 trillion number and come up 33 uh, percent? Cinema, who doesn't have a number, uh, does she, you know, give in and say, "Okay, look, look what I did. Look how amazing it was. It was six trillion dollars. It's now two trillion dollars. That's what I did. I saved the country four trillion dollars." Um, is there any reason to believe that Biden is actually knows what he's talking about? Like it, it, Biden says, I can get Mansion and Cinema to this number. Uh, this is the guy who went before the House on Friday and didn't say anything. Right. So uh, I have no reason to believe that that Biden knows what he's talking about or actually has some insight into Manchin and Cinema's behavior or w- what they'll accept. And B, I don't know if I believe the, that the progressives uh, will take whatever number can be given them. And in general, I don't believe that Manchin and Cinema have any necessary reason uh, to change their to change their their tunes. But that's me. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that if it's true, if 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 Mansion Cinema do change their tunes, it will be entirely independent of what Joe Biden knows or knew when he's when he said this. Um, but whether or not they do, I, I I really don't know at all. I I'm I I plead total ignorance here. I don't know. I don't know how this how this unfolds. 
I don't think cinema has a number. She doesn't. She, I don't think she would articulate it if she had one, and I don't think she has one to begin with, because I don't think she supports the reconciliation bill whatsoever. Um, in part because, and Joe Biden is apparently intending to rectify this when he travels to Michigan, he's going to rally in support of his own bills. And the um, reporting is that he's actually going to talk about what the hell they're supposed to do, uh, which would be a unique tactic, um, one we haven't seen recently, actually talking about what you're trying to get done as opposed to what you're trying to spend. But they're still talking about numbers. And that, to me, is the primary obstacle. They're not talking about what they hope to achieve. They're hope- talking about what they hope to spend. The spending is the point. Until the spending is not the point, the obstacle is always going to be the number. Well, I, you know, again, I think uh, you're, there is going to be pressure put on, on, on cinema they're des- in particular. They're desperate to spend your money. Yes. All they want to do in the world is spend your money. And they don't really care on what. And they talk about it. But no, it's terms. for your yeah, own yeah, good. Yeah. But what There's... they want to do is spend a colossal <laughs> amount of money. And they don't think that their their political fortunes are served unless they do spend colossal amounts of money. That is the point, And there is a desperate hunger for that. I understand. But they don't have the numbers. They don't have the votes. And this tactic is not changing. And until the tactic changes, the outcome isn't going to change. Well, we don't know that because we don't know what 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 the pressure what the pressure is going to do. Um I'll give you an example. So Josh Crowshar in National Journal writes a piece in which he says, "Cinema knows what she's doing. She has uh, actually her favorability ratings in Arizona are higher than her than her fellow Senator Mark Kelly's. Uh, she has forty percent support among uh, Republicans. She has a, a plus ten or something among independents." And so even though her numbers with Democrats are dropping a little, she knows what she's doing. And then this morning, Morning Consult has a poll out saying she's precipitously down among independents and 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 uh, and Democrats and is therefore at risk of losing in a primary or losing in a general or whatever. Because the Republicans, even if they favor her, won't vote for her if there's a Republican alternative. And the Democrats will turn on her by the time there's a primary anyway and she'll be out. So that is that is the fight that is going on behind the scenes is is cinema right or is she wrong is her calculation about being uh, a maverick uh who uh opposes spending is it right or is it wrong there's a, another piece in politico where an old hand uh named david doke uh uh says uh who has moved to arizona uh says uh oh sorry uh hmm, uh She's wrong. She's wrong. Uh, she's she's misreading the room, and uh, and that's the simple fact of the matter. But I mean, just because one guy uh, who basically I don't know. I mean, he hasn't been in you know he barely has been in politics for the last thirty. You know, I've barely heard of him in the last thirty years. Uh, David Doak. Um, well, because but you know because this is going to drag on a bit now um this 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 process um there is time for this very aggressive campaign to publicly brand cinema as something uh uh threatening and scary as a kind of trumpian really as a sort of as a as a as a crazy person who doesn't care about human beings um if that campaign uh finds some purchase over over the coming weeks could affect those numbers on her. I don't know. I don't know if it does or if it doesn't. But but there is there is a very concerted effort to um, 
make her a more polarizing figure than she already is. Right. Um, so uh, we don't know what happens when people are under this kind of pressure. She may but be under a new I'm, kind of pressure that she has never experienced before. I'm sorry to interrupt, though, but she's, I mean, by definition, in her home state, not a polarizing figure, right? I mean, right. she has bridged a lot of divides here. She's made Republicans apathetic about unseating her and independents, you know, vaguely supportive of her and Democrats, you know, sort of lukewarm on her. I mean, that's the definition of not polarizing. You're sort of right in the middle. So in that sense, she absolutely is doing what she needs to do. Well, well she's polarizing the Democratic Party. She's polarizing well, within her within her party. But, yeah, but that was but, that yeah. was Christine. That was Christine's dog right there. Just but I, I mean, this not, not to be too cutesy about it, but there's a paradox these days where, where whereby if if you are if you do bridge those divides, you are actually sort of the most polarizing figure that that anyone can be because that is that is either what you're you're is good or is terrible you are not supposed to bridge divides now because because we are you know at daggers drawn with the other side at all times right well the central the central truth is that any one of the candidates who was primaried out of existence on the republican side over the last 10 years would likely have won the general elections that they were in precisely because they were more inoffensive to a greater number of people in in a in, you know in the state in general but just had had lost the confidence of partisan republicans who make up the you know whip hand who who collectively are the whip hand uh in a in a in a primary and so that's that's what that's what cinema uh faces but um you know, I, 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 I have no idea. I just think that Manchin and Cinema are both better served by, you know, by. No, look, if if the number came down to one point five trillion, which is where which is where Manchin has it. Uh, and Manchin said, I'm I'm in because you matched my number. And then Cinema would be under almost un unbelievable pressure to give in on the grounds that the bill is four and a half trillion dollars smaller than it was in its initial form. And so the pressure that she and Manchin put on was wildly successful and therefore she should, she should also take half a loaf. Um, uh, you know, if that, if that were to happen, uh, that would be very interesting. You notice that Biden isn't saying that that's what's going to happen and he is going to give Manchin an out. If the number is two trillion, Manchin's going to say no. And yeah, and that dynamic holds really until I know the primary is going to kind of scramble things because Cinema will face a primary. But that dynamic holds until it's 2022 and the Senate majority starts to look really wobbly, not just in Arizona, but in Nevada and New Hampshire and a lot of places where you've got many vulnerable Democratic members. And then Democrats start to actually sober up and look at the fact that they might lose their majorities. And it's very competitive in the Senate. It will be very competitive. I mean, Democrats are now talking themselves into this notion that the Congress is all but lost. But, you know, this time eight months ago, the Senate was not in play. Um, it, it's a very tough landscape for Republicans. They have a lot of retirees. They're defending a lot more territory than Democrats are. The Senate is a battleground. And Democrats will sober up at some point, look at that map and say, look, we have a shot, but we have a very slim and narrow majority and the dynamics of power, you know, you know, raw power politics should prevail at a certain point to say that, you know, Senate is a key member of this caucus and without her, we're a minority party. But progressives in the House 
uh, I think, have already uh, in, in, internalized the idea that the house is gone as of November 2022, and they need to shoot the moon before then. Uh, senators, yeah, have I think other... that's true. But the Senate doesn't necessarily have to respond to that dynamic. I mean, senators care about two things. If you're a House member, are you a committee chair? Or you're from my state, right? No, but, that, no. Look, senators have something to do when they're, you know, if the Democrats could hold on to the Senate, hold on to fifty-fifty in the Senate. They've got the judiciary. They've got uh, appointments to executive offices. They have a lot that they can do. The House has nothing to do. The House loses the majority. And basically, there's almost nothing uh, for the for House Democrats to do. And so you're right that the Senate, you know, uh, Democrats are sacrificing a potential future in which they can pack the judiciary as much as they possibly can, assuming that, you know, Biden uh, is out in 2024 and maybe a Republican is in. And therefore, they shouldn't do whatever they they should do, whatever they can to not jeopardize or make possible a continued majority in the Senate because because of the good that they can do in their own lights. Uh, But the House has no such, you know, dynamic. And that's the other question, which is they may have said on this phone call, we don't know who told Lee Caldwell about the phone call. We don't know if progressives said that they would support the number. Uh, Remember, only four progressives have to say they won't support the number for the bill to go down. It's not like there are 90 progressives in the Progressive Caucus. Only four of them have to say, I'm sorry, you know, you're, you know, us giving up free college is to to bridge too far. So I can't support this bill. Uh, You know, just people on a phone call saying we'll support it doesn't mean that they'll support it. And they could tank it, too. So uh, I don't know that the dynamic is changing, but you can see how the pressure is going to be put on. Uh, with that, we will take a pause until tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.